listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr with Cindy Verblin, and of course, the man that always hits the mark, Jeffrey Mark, talking about Ethel Merman. Maybe speak a little bit about Ernest Borgnine. Yes. So I've kind of skipped over one of the largest things that happened to her in the 1960s, and that was her marriage to Ernest Borgnine. She had gotten divorced, and Borgnine was her type broad shouldered not terribly educated, talked like he grew up in some neighborhood in New York and enormously well-endowed. Those were the parameters Ethel needed to be happy with whomever she was dating. They met at a party, they flirted, they started having an affair. And they decided to get married. He had just begun McHale's Navy. She was doing television, the Judy Garland show, Lucy's show, They were both at the top of their game, but it seems as though they never really discussed much. They'd fly to wherever the other one happened to be to be intimate together, but it seems like all they did was be intimate. They didn't talk. So Lucille Ball threw a wedding shower for her. Ethel was having second thoughts about this, but because of the shower, all right, We've had this shower. This has to go forward. And the wedding day comes and Ernie's young daughter breaks her arm at the ceremony. So Ernie took her to the hospital to take care of the arm. Ethel went in the limousine with her agent to go to the reception. Ernie would meet her there. And in the limousine, the agent hands her a bill. And she said, what's this? He said, it's the bill for the reception. He said, why are you handing it to me? He said, because Ernie's people said the mother of the bride pays for this. Because her parents were still, even though she was almost 60, they were still alive. She said, my parents can't afford this. Who's going to pay them? He said, you are. Strike one. After the wedding, uh, Ethel and Ernie had Lucille Ball and her husband, Gary Morton, and Carol Cook and her husband, Tom Troop, over for drinks and coffee because the next day they were leaving on a honeymoon cruise to Japan. And while they were having their friends over talking, Ernie revealed that the cruise was not something he paid for. It was a gift from a Japanese beer company because he went to Japan in his McHale's Navy outfit and did commercials for them part of his payment was this cruise. And Ethel said to herself, I am paying taxable money for for our reception and you're giving me a non-taxable thing that you didn't even pay for? Strike two. The next day they get on the cruise ship and they're traveling in first class at a time when that kind of thing was important. And in those days, First-class passengers did not go to dinner. Everybody had dinner served in their rooms and suites. And you unpacked and got ready for the rest of the cruise because dinner was formal and no one wanted to wear formal clothes the first night out. But Ethel didn't unpack. Ethel always traveled with theatrical trunks. Every drawer was labeled exactly what she needed. So once the trunks were in the room, they had nothing to do. Ernie is aware his brand new wife is very unhappy with him, but he doesn't know why. So he begins to drink. Ethel begins to drink. They have dinner. 
and now they get into bed. And as it is the first night of their honeymoon cruise, and because they were both very sexual people, they initiate intimacy. And despite the initiation, Ernie could not, we might say, rise to the occasion. So Ethel, being a dutiful wife and experienced in these things, did what dutiful wives have been doing since day one. Their husbands aren't quite ready. And despite her best efforts, he still wasn't ready. So Ethel looked up at him slightly drunkenly and said, what's the matter? You're some kind of a fag? And Ernie being Ernie, he slapped her across the face. And Ethel being Ethel, she slapped him across the face harder. So Ernie being Ernie made a fist and cocked Ethel one across her chin that sent her off the bed and landing on her behind on the floor. My. Ethel got up, picked up the phone, called ship to shore, which is very expensive, to her attorney and she said, I want out. And he said to her, Ethel, you got married in the state of California. If you desert your husband before 30 days go by or 28 days go by, he can charge you with desertion and keep everything you brought to his house. Oh, wow. She wasn't going to give up all of her belongings. They traveled in separate staterooms to Japan, flew back home in separate airplanes. She went to his house. She lived in it for 28 days. On my 29th day, a moving van came, picked up all of her belongings and most of the wedding presents. And she never spoke to him again. They lived as man and wife for 48 hours. They were legally married for 28 days. In her book, which is hysterical, her autobiography, chapter 27, my marriage to Ernest Borgnine. You turn the page. Chapter 28. <laughs> and she said, my marriage to Ernest Borgnine is like a freight train passing a hobo in the night. Why look back? So that is the story of Ethel and Ernie, and someone should make a movie of that. Oh, Just that part of her life alone could be a whole film. Did, um, did Ernest have anything to say about this? Um, in later years, after Ethel died, Ernie said that the problem with their marriage is that he was a much bigger star than she was, and that she couldn't tolerate that. Uh, it wasn't true. Not the part about not tolerating it, but he wasn't a bigger star than she was. Uh, I'm not saying she was necessarily a bigger star, but she'd been a star a whole lot longer than he had. And he had not been able to turn the fluke of getting an Oscar for the movie Marty, Marty yeah. into a big film career. It didn't work out that way, which is why he was doing Mikhail's Navy on television. And... Um, I sent Ernie a copy of the book, hoping he'd sue me. No, no, no. Rosemary was a good friend to me of the Dick Van Dyke show and the Doris Day show and lots of other work. And uh, I had her read that chapter because she was one of Ethel's closest friends. And she read it and put it down and looked at me. And she said, how did you find this out? I thought I was the only person in the world who knew these things. 
and Rosie wrote the foreword for my book on Ethel Merman. I guess I should mention I wrote a book about Ethel Merman mm -hmm. called uh, Ethel Merman, The Biggest Star on Broadway, which was taken from The Lucy Show. Uh, Ethel Merman in The Lucy Show uh, moves in with them for reasons that are too long to go into. And Lucy's complaining, Merman, Merman, Merman. The way everybody responds to her, you think she was the biggest star on Broadway. And Vivian just leans into her and says, she is. <laughs> That's where the title of the book came from. What, um, did Ethel ever indicate that she would like to have changed something in her career later in life? Later in Ethel's life, she wishes she hadn't married anybody except the father of her children. She wishes she had not had the affair with Sherman Billingsley. But there was nothing about her career that she wanted to change. She kept in touch with her friends from when she was in high school. They were still her closest friends. She was a, a wonderful daughter to her parents. She was much more successful as a daughter than she was as a mother. She really made sure her parents were well taken care of. After her mother had the stroke, she stayed close to New York. She eventually moved them into her building until when she'd gotten back to New York and stayed there for good after Denver, lived in apartment hotels. Uh, hotels that you could get an apartment in them, but you got maid service and there was a restaurant that could deliver you food and you could decorate any way you wanted to, but it was very theatrical. A lot of theatrical people historically lived that way in New York City. They didn't want to live in a hotel hotel. They wanted their own things and their own rooms, but they wanted the services of a hotel. And Ethel moved her parents into the same hotel room, uh, same hotel, different floor, and arranged their furniture for them so it was the same way it had been. Even their toothbrushes were in the same place. She really, she really took good, good care of them. Uh, her mother died in the mid-70s. Her father lived to be almost 100. He died in the late 70s. Ethel did consider retiring at that point. At that point in her life, her son was on his own. He was successfully working in show business. Her grandchildren were in high school or getting to be grown already. And she did a one night stand on Broadway with Mary Martin called Together Again to raise money for the theater collection of the, city of, uh, the Museum of the City of New York. A legendary evening I was there for. I'm so glad I was there for. So there was an announcement made in the New York Times that Ethel Merman and Mary Martin were going to do a one-night-only concert to benefit the museum. And Anna Sasenko was producing it. You called on the Sunday morning. They said tickets would be open. 30 seconds into it, you couldn't get through any longer. All the tickets were sold out. And they weren't $5 tickets. They were like $500 tickets. Whoa. So I wrote Ethel and I said, you know, they probably gave a lot of tickets away to famous people, which is lovely. But how about those of us who are coming up? This may be our only chance to see the two of you together. It's a shame we couldn't get in. And about 10 days, no, a week before the performance, I get a phone call. And it's Ted Fetter, who was the curator of the museum and Cole Porter's cousin. And 
it's obvious he's in a theater. I can hear a band playing and I can hear the lady singing in the background. He said, Jeffrey, can you hear them? I said, yes. He said, the ladies are rehearsing right now. Ethel got your letter and wanted me to call you. He said, I assure you, not one ticket was given away to anybody. Everybody who got a ticket paid a premium for it. There are no tickets left. And then he lowered his voice. He said, can you hear me? I said, yes. He said, but come to the stage door 15 minutes before time, mention my name, and you're going to be a piece of furniture. I'm going to put you backstage in the wings. You won't be able to see all of it, but you'll get to hear all of it. You don't say a word to anybody. You don't tell people why you're there. You just stand where I put you, and for two and a half hours, you are marble statuary. I'll let you breathe. That's it. That's all you get, breathing. And you can go outside during the intermission. And that's how I spent this concert. Wow. Cyril Richard was the narrator. He'd been Mary Martin's Captain Hook and Peter Pan. And when we talk about Mary Martin in another segment of these shows, we'll tell you some inside stories about Cyril and Peter Pan. But we'll stick with Ethel for tonight. He narrated the show. Mary Martin came out and did a medley of songs she sang before she became famous. Ethel came out and sang a medley of songs she made famous, including I Got Rhythm. Then Mary came out and did a few songs she made famous. And Ethel closed the first act singing, Gee, but it's good to be here and blow Gabriel blow. In such strong voice that Lauren Bacall was hopping up and down on her chair in excitement, seeing Ethel being able to sing this well. The opening of the show was tremendously theatrical. The curtain goes up and there are two circus hoops that you can break through. On one is printed a drawing of Ethel Merman as Mama Rose carrying a little dog, wearing the frumpy clothing. The other one is a picture of Mary Martin from South Pacific in the sailor's outfit when she was singing Honey Bun. And the orchestra just hits a note. And you hear Merman's voice backstage, making our entrance again. And then Mary sings with our usual flair. Sure of our lines, no one is there. And they come bursting through the hoops and Ethel is wearing the costume and Mary is in the sailor's outfit. And they sing an up-tempo version of Sending the Clowns. Isn't it rich? Bomb, bomb. Aren't we a pair? Bomb, bomb. And that's how the show got started. It was just one thing after another. Merman's Blow Gabriel Blow was the most incredible thing I've ever seen on the stage. Intermission came and I spent intermission with Margaret Whiting, who was there with uh, her soon to be husband, Jack Wrangler, who was a gay porn star. We'll talk about Margaret Whiting some other time also. And the second act, Cyril Richard comes out and out comes like every man on Broadway. Every, every male with a name who was in New York at that time, Burgess Meredith and, and uh, Larry Hagman, Mary's son, and he says, shh, sir, she's here. And the curtain rises behind them and there's two staircases and identical dolly outfits. 
Ethel and Mary come sashaying down. The audience is losing its mind. And they each pretend like the other one isn't there. And Mary finally looks over at Ethel and goes, well, hello, Ethel, which gets a nice little giggle. And Ethel does a double take and goes, well, with limp wrists, hello, Mary. Pandemonium. Pandemonium that Ethel gave a wink to her gay audience. Then Mary sings, it's so nice to be back home. And Ethel sings, where I belong. You're looking swell, Ethel. I can tell, Mary, you're still glowing. Are you still crowing? And Mary sings, I'm still crowing strong. <laughs> Pandemonium again. And they do the entire number together. And they follow that with the 50th, the Ford's 50th anniversary show medley. That was the first medley done on television with two ladies singing on stools. Every other variety show in history followed them. And it was an important moment in 50s television. And they recreated that medley on stage. That was the evening. Wow. Anna Senko did a great job of producing this thing. They wanted to take it on the road. They wanted to uh, record it and put it on PBS and Mary Martin wouldn't allow it. Mary got very shy and overwhelmed with stage fright as she got older. And there were times when she couldn't hit notes, not because she couldn't sing, but because she got terrified and her throat closed up because of terror. And she wasn't sure how she'd come across. And while she was happy to do it for those 2000 people, she didn't want to do it for millions of people. So that is the story of Ethel Merman and Mary Martin at the Broadway Theater in 1977. Wow. You can find the um, YouTube video of the Hello Dolly number, although you don't, it's not really a video. It's a picture of them from that and you can hear it. But that's all I could find. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the, there was no video uh, ever taken of the thing. Mary, Mary wouldn't allow it. Ethel wanted it. Ethel wanted to go on tour with this thing. And Mary wouldn't do it. Ethel spent the rest of her professional life doing game shows in Hollywood, appearing on television specials, and almost exclusively singing with symphony orchestras and philharmonics around the country, where the first act would be the symphony doing whatever they wanted to do. The second act was Merman doing her concert. And it was exactly the same from night to night to night. And she did them until uh, she, she died in 1984, but she got sick in 83. And she, she was singing up till 1983. She'd gotten older, she'd gotten heavier. Her voice was not what it once was, but considering her age, she sounded great. And she'd gotten booked in 1983 on the Emmy Awards, the Tony Awards, and the Oscars to sing on all three of them in the same year. Wow. And she didn't. Ethel was getting ready to leave for the West Coast, had her trunks already put together, and called downstairs for them to come get them. And she had a stroke. And she had been robbed several years earlier, burglarized. So she had like six locks on her front door. And she had to drag herself through her apartment 
to get to the front door to unlock them so they could come in and help her. What had happened is that Ethel had a stroke because she had a brain tumor that was cancerous that caused it. Ethel lingered another year after that and then passed away. She was like 78? No, this is, she passed away in 1984. No, I mean, she was 78 years old? Yes, yes. You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr with Cindy Verbalant and, of course, the man that always hits the mark, Jeffrey Mark, talking about Ethel Merman. This is Hitting the Mark. I'm Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr, and we are talking with the one and only Jeffrey Mark about Ethel Merman. Now, when was the disco album done? Posthumously or before she died? No, 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 no. That was in the late 1970s, right at the height of disco, when Barbara Streisand and um, Donna Summer had their big hit with Enough is Enough. Hot stuff. Uh, they decided to bring Ethel in and have her sing her greatest hits done to disco arrangements. <laughs> they got Peter Matz, who had been Barbara Streisand's arranger, to arrange the songs, and they brought Donna Summer in to stand with Ethel and help her get the beat. So they recorded Ethel with just the rhythm section, and then everything else was added afterwards. It was either the campiest thing ever made or the worst bomb ever done. <laughs> and I can only tell you that I had the first copy signed by her. I still have it. Uh, there was going to be a follow-up album, but it didn't sell enough to warrant a second one. I told her, you're doing a disco album for dancers. You don't put Blow Gabriel Blow in. She was, what were we thinking? She says, you're right. We should put that in the next album. But there was no next album. And uh, they, they laughingly say that the Ethel Merman disco album is what killed disco. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just a coincidence that uh, new age music came in right afterwards. But um, she had a lot of play out of it. She was on all the talk shows. and uh, But it was the wrong thing at the wrong time at her age. There are so many things she could have done that she didn't do. She could have done a rock and roll album. Well, huh? <laughs> she wasn't a rock and roll singer. I know, but that would have been, see, that would have been the perfect reason to do it. You know, I mean, there's something different. Yeah, I mean, Mae West did one of those. It, it didn't sell too much either. Well, that's one of the greatest albums ever recorded. He plays that. But it didn't sell. You know, we're talking professionally, not, not was it fun to listen to, but does it sell? Well, I can't believe it didn't sell. I mean, I have a copy of it. I love it. There would have been more. If it had sold, there would have been a whole series of Mae West albums. Believe me, record companies, then and now, if something sells, they follow it up. They don't follow it up. It didn't sell enough. Right. Bothered me. So um, Ethel did not often record. Mostly it was one greatest hits album after another every five or six years with different arrangements and the soundtracks and original cast recordings of her Broadway and film appearances. Mm -hmm. She did do some singles for Decca in 1950, one of which with Ray Bolger called Deary sold about 100,000 copies. And the recording off of television of the duet she and Mary did together also sold a couple of hundred thousand copies, which was a big deal back then. So she was not particularly a recording artist. 
there are a lot of wonderful songs Ethel could have gone into the studio and recorded in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, the way Kate Smith did, people with big voices. She, she just didn't do it. She just chose to stick to those songs she introduced. Really and truly, in her concerts and nightclub work, uh, consistently the only song she did was Alexander's Ragtime Band, which she kind of owned, but she didn't introduce it. Uh, in the 70s, she closed her concerts, just voice and piano with what I did for love and someone to watch over me. So she didn't have to scream so much over a, a philharmonic orchestra sound. But basically, these are my songs and um, there's like 40 of them. And to make it easier for her to deal with, about 15 of them were in a medley. So she didn't have to sing whole songs, just little snippets of this and snippets of that. Uh, perhaps that's why in the 70s her star waned a little bit because every time you saw her, she was singing the same two or three songs. If you went to see her live, it was the same show, always. And maybe if she mixed it up a little bit and done it a little differently, you might have uh, gotten a different response. But careers come and go. And Ethel was back on the rise again. Right When she got sick, she was about to be on top again. That's why she got booked for all three major award shows. That's a big, big triumph for a performer. So she went out on top. She went out on top. Yeah, very interesting. Jeffrey, will you sing a song for us? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <clears throat> I am a little sore throaty today, but I'm going to do my best for you. Days can be sunny with never a sigh. Don't need what money can buy. Birds in the trees sing their day full of song. Why shouldn't we sing along? I'm shipper all the day, happy with my lot. How do I get that way? Look at what I got. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. I got daisies in green pastures, I got my man who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble, I don't mind him, you won't find him round my door. I got starlight. And I got sweet dreams. I got my man who could ask for anything more. Who could ask for anything more? Oh, who could ask for anything more? Oh, who could ask for anything more? And old man trouble, I don't mind him. 
you won't find him hanging around my front or back door. Ah, who could ask for anything more? Who could ask for anything Jeffrey, Mark, uh, my goodness, I, I was floored by how incredible you sounded today right on, so-called, on the mark on that song, and I couldn't have been any better. Thank yeah, you. Thank sure. You. Yeah, so this is Hitting the Mark. I'm Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr, and we have been speaking with the one and only Jeffrey Mark about Ethel Merman. And next time on Hitting the Mark... Just to be fair to the two ladies, we're going to have a nice long talk about my friend, the wonderful Mary Martin.